So, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to the, the live show of On the Shoulders of Giants, the first of two live shows that you'll see me in the same place, same time, um, different day this week. So if you guys haven't caught the first seven or eight episodes of On the Shoulders of Giants, this is my co-host, Max. Max, you want to say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. Um, yeah. And so Max and I talk a lot about operational excellence. Uh, we talk a lot about kind of solving manufacturing problems. Um, and a lot of it is based around kind of the, the thoughts of theory of constraints. Uh, so what is theory of constraints, like practical theory of constraints? I think that was episode seven. If Vlad is somewhere in here, he will drop the links to the show here. Otherwise, you can go to manufacturinghub.live, click on On the Shoulders of Giants, and you can see all of the first seven or eight episodes that we have. So I ask Max a lot of questions. I think one of the questions that I asked him is like, Max, how did you learn about theory of constraints? And that led us down, well, that kind of devolved to, to this book, right? So synchronous management uh, profit-based manufacturing for the 21st century. And Max, you said that you actually sat and studied with the gentleman who everyone just calls Shriek, correct? Yes, that's correct. And Perfect. he's the one that authored this book. Yes. And a lot of what I learned is from him. I went to Goldratt schools and a lot of the courses that I took there were taught by him. So I learned a lot from Shree. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to discuss his book. Yeah. So, so we're going to discuss his book. Um, I, I will say on the first book we went through, of course, we picked a book that you have to buy on the secondary market, which is why if you look at my book, it looks like it's a thousand years old compared to Max's book. And I imagine Mac bought his. It's pristine here. We can go ahead and, and hold them up next to each other. Mine's got nicks and cuts and uh, well, it looks like I've owned it, and it's also been on 20,000 miles of, of airplane rides in the past uh, six weeks. So it's a really good book. We're, we're going to go through it and uh, and, and hit some things. Uh, so I, I really like the, the first chapter, right? So we call it manufacturing as a competitive weapon. And I, I feel like, one, more people need to, uh, need to focus on manufacturing and what they do well versus the market and how they can leverage that as a weapon. Uh, They've got a bunch of really good quotes, but before we jump in completely, I feel like I should make a a series of caveats, right? So this book was written, I think it was published, the version I got in 97, 98. There's a number here somewhere. It was published, okay, so copyright 97. So it was written in the mid 90s. And there have been some like massive things in the the history of the world that has happened, right? So mid nineties, we were solidly offshoring um, a lot of major U.S. companies, and so kind of the whole offshoring and now the reshoring initiatives have happened. Uh, let's see what else. So so Y two K happened, nine uh, eleven happened. We had an economic recession in the two thousand eight two thousand and eight. And that was just the decade immediately following this. So there are a number of caveats that I feel like we all have to go into these books thinking about because the world is completely different versus one it's, it's written. And I find that as I read lots of like business books from the nineties, if I remember that, you know, all of these things have happened and some of the examples aren't the best, then it, it absolutely helps. It absolutely helps as, as I look through it. Uh, beyond that, I think that one of the best uh, one of the best parts of this book is Max. I think they've got the best quotes to start 
Yes. Every chapter of any book, right? Yes. So we, we start with Abraham Lincoln, a quote from Abraham Lincoln. We've got a quote from Henry Ford, I think, on chapter two or three. Uh, but, but Max, like, I'm going to let you kind of go through and, and talk about maybe what you learned, uh, how you leverage that in. And if you kind of want to walk us through the, the first few chapters, uh, maybe kind of Shree's comments as he taught. Because you guys use this as kind of like a, a guidebook, a, a textbook, correct? Yes, and so my operational excellence workshop that I put together all of this book. So there's certain um, things that he talks about, certain paradigms that organizations need to have, mm-hmm. and paradigms of way of thinking. And I've incorporated a lot what's in this book into my workshop. So if yes. you've been through my operational excellence workshop, which Dave has multiple times, mm-hmm. you'll see how it sort of models this book and how the book flows. Absolutely. Almost uh, almost one-to-one in, yep. in some cases. It's interesting because I read this book years and years ago, and then I put the workshop together, and I, and I went through it the second time. It's like, wow, it's amazing how much the workshop models the flow of this book. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, Andreas, it is Synchronous Management Profit-Based Manufacturing for the 21st Century. Uh, I'm going to let Max talk through it, and I will go ahead and drop a link to it. Uh, in the chat, if Max wants to, start, wants to kind of start with the overview. Yeah, so the first chapter talks about manufacturing as a competitive weapon. So the really the focus and the focus that I have is understanding the needs of the customer and then designing the organization to satisfy those needs mm-hmm. and to satisfy them to the extent that no significant competitor can deliver. And so he talks about what is synchronous management and it's about getting all the elements of the organization, so the resources, the activities that go on the organization, and looking them, looking at them from a perspective of dependencies, so that's their interdependencies within the organization. It's getting resources synchronized mm-hmm. to meet customer requirements. Mm-hmm. It's not just the demand. It's like everything that the customer requires that we're able to deliver on those things. Yep. So that's the mindset of getting everybody synchronized in a line with the customer. Mm-hmm. What you think would be like, it makes sense, right? Like, as you say, it, it makes a lot of sense. But now if you guys go look at your organizations, it's going to be like, yes, this makes sense. Why are we as an organization not, you know, in flow and synchronous with the customer demands? And, and then you just open a big can of worms and 20 years later, you come out with an operational excellence workshop like Max. Right. Absolutely. So, so they have a bunch of very interesting examples in here. Um, as, as I mentioned, it being a '90s book, um, not all of like modern examples flow through. But they talked about Henry Ford up here in the beginning, and like Fordson. So, and the, also Dr. Deming, right? So that's yep. our shoulders of giants. Yes, philosophy is using the principles of those giants, Deming, yes, Ford, and really taking that and leveraging that knowledge and building on that knowledge that they developed already. Yep. And it feels like we as a manufacturing in general have lost much of that knowledge, right? It, it feels like much of it that Henry Ford figured out a hundred years ago, we have just like completely lost. So in the example with Henry Ford, they talk a lot about flow and right. So he had the luxury of being able to have his stuff, everything on water, right? So he can just uh, put anything he wants on a boat, raw materials or otherwise, bring it to him. So it's kind of the precursor of just in time. 
And so he had all the raw materials coming in at a perfect time. He had virtually no warehouses of raw materials or of in-process materials. Uh, I mean, the benefit is you sell the same car and you sell it in the same color. And so you completely reduce variability, which is different. In the than, product, right? In the product, which is different than most people. In order to find a competitive advantage, you have to have large variability in your product or you have to sell it at a very low rate. But Max and I would never suggest that your competitive advantage is we can sell it cheaper than someone else. And so he also talks about the competitive competitive elements. Yep. So one is responsiveness to the customer. Mm-hmm. The second is reliability to the customer. So delivering to the dates that you promised. Yes. Third is price competitiveness and fourth is quality competitiveness. And so he talks about in the first chapter about what happens when you're unsynchronized, what effects do you see? And then if you are synchronized, what effects do you see? Absolutely. Um, and so I think that the first chapter is, is really good. I think you could almost like take the first chapter, come to these realizations that man, like we are doing everything incorrectly and and almost in theory, not go beyond the first chapter and already have, you know, huge opportunities for gains. But that is just the beginning of the first like 10 pages of the book. So the, so we talk about kind of standard cost system. Um, now, if you guys have not heard Max talk about costing and how and why we cost things how we do in a manufacturing environment, I believe we've done an episode on that. Uh, we'll have to drop that in the uh, in, in the notes as to what episode it was. But but I can save us all like twelve hours of, of Max pulling up a slide deck and say we should not standard cost like standard costing and putting overhead on everything is is generally bad. We used to be able to do it because everything was an hourly rate and we used to be able to cost almost directly one to one what it takes. But now as we look at costing, if we've got a whole bunch of overhead and we take the overhead and just kind of apply it directly to every part of your organization. Uh, you basically have organizations that are near like catastrophic failure because they don't understand that you shouldn't sell this theoretical output from one part of the organization to another organization uh, if they can buy it on the market for less expensive, even though it costs you a dollar and a half per widget. If they can go buy it for 50 cents on the market, you shouldn't force them to buy it from one segment for the other for a dollar. Yeah, so it goes and talks about, and it's also the belief that I have, is that the cost allocation method is Mm -hmm. what's hurting most companies in terms of their decision-making to make effective decisions. Mm -hmm. And so they make decisions based on cost, not based on flow. And if the way we determine cost is flawed, Mm -hmm. of course, we're going to make incorrect decisions. Yes. And he actually talks about the history of cost accounting and it stemmed from when mass production was going on that Mm -hmm. people were paid on a piece rate system. And so if I took the piece rate and the output, my direct labor cost was a direct function of the output of the company. So if I only pay on piece rate on completed units going out the door, then my relationship between direct labor and output is a a one-to-one relationship. But then when day rates came into effect Mm -hmm. and people are no longer paid on, Mm -hmm. on piece rate, now there's no relationship between output and direct labor costs, yep. but we're still allocating costs like there is. Yep. 
So it's like a root cause I see in a lot of companies is the external environment changes, but we don't change the process internal to to adjust to that new environment. So now the environment of the from piece rate to a day rate, and they still allocate costs like it's a piece rate system. Absolutely. So as an example, so if, if we were to make these awesome studio neat pano books that I really wish they could get more in stock of so I can buy more. Um, and I was the person that kind of put all of the paper and, and the top and the bottom together. And Max was the person that punched the holes and Vlad who's in the chat. Hey Vlad, uh, he kind of put them on the binding and we all got paid per, yeah, per items. The, the throughput is we have a finished notebook and we can sell the finished notebook for five bucks or 10 bucks or I don't even want to know what they cost because it's better if I just expense it and don't think about it. Right. But if, if we had that, then it, it's one to one. And for every time I put them together, Max punches the holes and Vlad binds them, then they have sold this item for $10 and I make a buck and Max makes a buck and Vlad makes a buck and it's $2 of raw materials. And then the company makes $5 on top of what they pay us. But we have noticed kind of a major, as they go and change away from that, and as we hold more inventory and as we do a lot of other things, no people have gone away from the piece rate. And as you go away from the piece rate and you don't have that direct correlation, unless you make the mindset shift on accounting, then you're going to continue to just drive yourself further and further into a hole. Speaking of holes, Max, let's move on from accounting before we lose everyone currently listening to us. Um, at some point, we will get deep into cost account, the fallacy of cost accounting, uh, and maybe bring on some uh, some CFOs that we know who have mo- moved away from that for a variety of reasons. So I just want to make one comment. So when I was in a seminar with Dr. Goldratt, he was talking about cost accounting and all the problems. And then he said, someone said, well, what about activity-based costing? So that was the next big thing that came up. Yeah, there's a whole after, chapter in here about, about activity. And so Dr. Goldratt's comment was, Activity-based costing is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Ah, Different look, same result. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and and they, they go into that. And we will like briefly touch upon activity-based accounting to say it was the thing after cost accounting that the, fir- the deeper and deeper like scholars of activity-based accounting, which is just a strange thing to say um, out loud, Max, ha- have come to is that at some point you just don't know, right? Like at some point it just continues to be we're costing overhead. So activity-based counting, slight movement in the correct direction, but not the direction that uh, that, that we need or want or should to go get breakthrough into. improvement. To, to get breakthrough improvement, and we haven't necessarily talked about breakthrough improvement. So breakthrough improvement is a tenant of, of theory of constraints. Is a tenant of Dr. Goldratt, and that, that's as I write on all of our podcasts. If you want to get 5% better, don't listen to this because breakthrough improvement is 50% better, is 100% better, is, I mean, in some cases is 25% better. But if you're just looking for incremental improvement, go study something that is not theory of constraints. Go read a book that is not this book because at the end of the day, the thing that is important is breakthrough improvement. And so there are lots of mindset shifts that one has to do in uh, in order to get through that. So the next chapter talks about performance measurement. Mm-hmm. And of course, in my workshop, I talk a lot about the importance of having the right measurements. Yes. And so many companies I see have the incorrect measurement. Mm-hmm. And like I say in my workshop, the measurement 
drives behavior. Yes. If we have the wrong behaviors, we got to look at what measurement systems we have in place mm-hmm. that are driving those wrong behaviors. And a lot of people think don't think that measurement's that important. It's critical. And I tell people I only have two words, Wells Fargo. <laughs> uh, so people understand what the Wells Fargo scandal was when the yep. CEO was trying to drive stock price. Yep. And they're trying to drive growth in the company. Yes. So how do you show growth? New accounts, New accounts. being open. Yep. People are committing fraud to meet the goal. So yep. that's the power of measurement. Doing something that they know is wrong. Yes. But they do it anyhow to meet the goal. But so let's have KPI conversation, right? So KPIs, key performance um, indicators are, I think everyone agrees, extremely important. Have you ever walked into a company that says, these are our KPIs, we're confident in our KPIs? No. No, because I don't think anyone is confident in our KPIs. I think that lots of people go wade into the data space, right? Databases and information about production lines, and they come back with, well, this is what this is the data, but we don't know the correct questions to ask. And if we're not asking the correct questions, we'll never get the correct answers. So having to go through and kind of build KPIs and understanding the difference between a leading and a lagging and like going to understand what is actually important to an organization. I think one of the things that we found is important to virtually every organization next is throughput, right? Yes. And so somewhere in here, we talk about throughput basically only counting as throughput if we can sell it, right? It's not throughput if I've built the wrong thing and I put the wrong thing on stock. Yeah. It's only throughput if I have built it and go through the process of, of actually selling it uh, across an organization. And so a lot of companies I go into, I see they're swimming in data. Yep. And I call it a sea of data, mm-hmm. but there's no data I can see. <laughs> so what we want to do is the KPIs need to be data that we can see, and we don't need a sea of data to accomplish that. Like so it's that. like all this stuff's being measured it, but most of it's irrelevant. Absolutely. Uh, so but before we continue on with that, I will say that if you guys have questions, if you guys want us to dig deeper into either this or some of the other things that we do, please feel free to go ahead and drop them in the chat. We'll be happy to, uh, to answer them um, as we go through it. But talking about a sea of data and not knowing what we see. So uh, chapter four, we talk about dependency and variability, right? And so they, they call it the twin killers in manufacturing. And to, to Max's sea of data point uh, that we've got, and as I promised, the best quotes, right? So Daniel Webster, there is nothing so powerful as the truth and often nothing so strange. So Max, why, why don't you tell us what dependency is? And then we'll talk about variability upon dependency and why dependencies are bad and it just exacerbates variability. Yep. So dependencies is pretty simple. It's like I'm dependent on somebody else. So the example Dave gave with the notebook, I can't punch the holes until he assembles the, yep. the pages. Yes. So I'm dependent on him to do his task so I can do my task. And then Vlad would be dependent on me. He can't bind it until I punch the hole. So that's a dependency. Yes, absolutely. And so if I haven't put the, the notebook together, I can't give it to Max and punch the holes. And then Max is sitting there. And if like, well, let's say I go to lunch and I haven't put together enough notebooks for Max to punch during my lunch, then Max has nothing to do for my lunch. And then if he's planning to go on lunch after me so that I can put more in, in front of him, 
than just so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, Vlad's just super lazy and is uh, just going to be sitting there like, well, guys, I took a lunch. Or, well, I haven't done anything for the last two and a half hours, but it's time for me to go on lunch. Maybe I'll get some stuff uh, at my station tomorrow. And so I did work with a construction company yeah. and we have lots of dependencies in construction. What do they do? Oh, we don't want to stop working. So we'll do stuff out of sequence. <laughs> Okay. And when we do things out of sequence, that creates a whole nother set of issues. For example, oh, we're gonna we're gonna um, put the floors down before we paint, right? Because we're not ready for the paint, so we'll put the floors down. Yeah. But now, paint on the new floors. So, so now I got to do all the masking work to mask all the floors before I can paint. So now I'm adding extra work into the process to compensate for we did things out of sequence. Okay. And so, so variability is all of the changes. So if we were to make just this one notebook, there would be, you know, for, and we could get all the raw materials and there'd be virtually no variability. But if we were making this notebook and this bag and these headphones and, and I don't know, Max, you don't have anything on your side of the table. I'm just pulling stuff from my side of the table for these a book. <laughs> and, and a book, right? So if we're making all of these things, then we have huge amounts of variability. And so it increases a bunch of different steps. And so if we're all aligned, so if we're all making this notebook, then we're good, right? We have generally reduced the variability. But if I'm working on this notebook and, and Vlad is trying to put these together and Max is in the middle trying to sew this pouch, then we have just increased our, our variability. And we, we have made everything much more difficult. And if... Max is putting together one thing and I'm giving him raw materials for something completely different and Vlad is working on a third thing, then to Max's point on, on masking before we put the floor so that we can paint. We're out of sync. We're out of sync. And it's not bad when you talk about three people, but when you think of an entire construction company building a Costco or when you think of, you know, 60 automation lines in one facility, and if they're all not focused on the same thing, then everything is completely out of sync and, and nothing gets made. And then we don't have throughput and then they call Max. And what we see, there's variability everywhere. Yep. So there's variability in the product. There's variability in the process. There's variability in customer demand. There's variability in supply. Mm -hmm. Variability alone isn't bad. No dependencies alone isn't bad, but when you couple the two, that's where the problem becomes. So that's why he says it's the twin killers because every operation has variability and it has dependency. Absolutely. And so you, you're almost always going to have dependencies, right? So to get rid of- If you have more than one person in the organization, yes. you have dependencies. So to get rid, like you could in theory have buffers, but or you kind of push to a, a warehouse location an intermediary stock location, but that causes a bunch of other issues as we will assumably talk about um, into it. So everyone has dependency and variability unless you're doing it all by yourself. But as we compound all of these things, that is why dependency and variability is why you can run 10 widgets an hour with one shift, but then you add two shifts and you're now running six widgets an hour across two shifts or four widgets an hour across three shifts. And you're like, oh, I'm just gonna add another shift. I should be able to double my throughput. And it almost never happens. 
I just watched an interesting video. We can post the link in here. It's yeah. about um, they took cars and they put it on a circle track. And so they had all these cars on the track mm -hmm. and they told everybody drive at this speed. So yeah. 30 miles an hour, everyone's going to drive at 30 miles an hour. And if you watch the video, what happens is because there's variation in that speed, the gaps between some cars get tighter yeah. and pretty soon the circle of cars comes to a stop. Yeah, it would have to, right? Because of the buildup of the variability between the dependencies. So we might drop the link for that so you can watch actually watch that happen. It's an interesting phenomenon. Absolutely. So I, the first motorcycle I purchased, Max, the speedometer was like minus 10%, which at 30 miles an hour isn't bad. But at 65 or 70 miles an hour down the highway, you're like, okay, but now I have to do 10-ish percent and then I've got to add it. So... I should be going 80 miles an hour on the speedometer and I'm really going about the speed limit. And then the further you get and the tolerance got bigger, the further you get. And so I'm basically over here having to do calculus in order to figure out my, my speed. So not what you want to be doing when you're driving not, a motorcycle. Not what you want to be doing when, when you're driving a motorcycle. So to reduce the variability is always positives. And that's one of the things that we do when we go in and we talk in order to reduce uh, variability and the more variability we can reduce the generally less important the, the the less cumbersome the dependencies become so in the book he talks about balanced mm -hmm. systems and he uses marching soldiers as an yeah. example of balanced systems in order to synchronize the flow we don't want balanced no. systems we want balanced flow so I don't know if we want to talk about the difference should, between those two. I feel like this is very important that the first, like you said that and 12 people just thought we were idiots, Max. So explain the, the unbalanced philosophy to have a facility that runs correctly. It's because we have the dependencies and because we have the variability, mm -hmm. if we have everyone with the same capacity what we see is that when there's a delay in one operation, it transfers downstream to all the other operations. So we're seeing it in the company we're working with. They have a, a line mm -hmm. and all the machines are tied together. So there's a disruption in one line. Yeah. It affects the whole line. Mm -hmm. And so they tried, they tried to balance that line by getting the machine speeds to all run the same. So the first thing we did was set, when we went in, it's like unbalance the line. And they ran better. Yep. So, you have generally online, you have a design constraint, right? So if you are in food and beverage and you're filling anything, the design constraint is going to be your filler, right? So the, yeah, yeah it costs significantly more in order to fill more widgets per hour, uh, jars of peanut butter, cans of beer, uh, barrels of, of petroleum products. It costs more to have a filler, um, that can do, call it 500 widgets over 400 widgets. So the goal of the entire system should be never make the filler stop. And so if you look at it, never make the filler stop, then whatever we're feeding in, let's say it's 55 gallon drums. We want to make sure that we never run out of 55 gallon drums and the person putting the pallet of 55 gallon drums always has pallets of 55 gallon drums. And then whoever is palletizing the 55 gallon drums on the other side and putting the lids on and bending it and labeling and all those things that should never stop. That should never stop the filler from filling. That's right. 
And so you want, I don't know, generally plus 20% on either end of extra capacity or sprint capacity, or ideally we can run it regularly 20% more. It's okay if we've got 55 gallon drums waiting to be filled. It's okay if it takes a little bit longer to band them, label them, put them on the next pallet, but it's never okay if any of those things stop the filler. That's right. And it's interesting because when I, my education is in industrial engineering. So when I was in a student, they talk about line balancing. Mm -hmm. So line balancing is that you try to make the work content the same Mm -hmm. between all operators or all elements of that system. Mm -hmm. And so that's great when you don't have variation but we know that it's impossible to have zero variations. So what I learned in school was, oh, you want a line balance and you want to make all the operations so that they're the same cycle times. And then I meet Dr. Golrat and it's like, no, no. we have variability. Yes. So we need unbalanced lines to get. So to get the most productivity, we want to unbalance the line so we can get balanced flow it means that the flow is consistent through the line. Absolutely. No, and so... Uh, so this whole chapter four on dependency and variability, also a really good chapter. So they go and they talk a little bit about scheduling. And Max and I have talked so many hundreds of hours about scheduling to, to so many people. I don't know if we've covered it specifically in this uh, on this show. Um, so scheduling is typically uh, a constraint, right? It, it is a it is a pain point for almost every organization that you talk to. We will have an entire show that we talk about scheduling. So the next show that comes out is actually going to be uh, live clippets of a presentation that Max and I are going to do a couple of times this week. And we will talk through a few scheduling examples and then maybe 11 or 12, we will get, ed- we will get deeper into scheduling. Uh, but that is, that, that is a series of shows all on its own. Uh, but but ske- just know scheduling is important, and you have to schedule for the the unbalanced line. Uh, to Max's point, uh, you want to talk about bottlenecks and non-bottlenecked resources. Yep. So chapter five is exactly that. And if we have a balanced system, mm-hmm. there can't be bottlenecks and non-bottlenecks because they all have the same capacity by design. Mm-hmm. But we want an unbalanced system. So the precursor to bottlenecks and non-bottlenecks is that we have an unbalanced operation where resources have different capacities. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then, of course, there can only be one bottleneck in in any system. And most resources are non-bottlenecks. Yes. They, they, They have to be. Uh, which is one of the, I don't know, one of the, the best things about going and looking at a line when you look at flow. The in theory of constraints defines that there is a singular constraint. So anytime you have a person that says, oh, there are multiple constraints, the answer is obviously no, there's not. There, there's one constraint. If you can find the constraint and remove variability, remove dependency, do something to that constraint, that is where you find that is generally where you find breakthrough improvement with, with any uh, specific facility. So th- there are a bunch of really good examples about bottlenecks versus non-bottleneck uh, resources. And what was in here? So I, I, I got to this and I saw Max like 12 hours after I got to this, this chapter of the book. 
Um, and so it's it's one of the figures, right? So it's, it's quite literally entitled Causes of Waste. So breakdowns, no material, no operator, scrap and repair, wrong product or lengthy setups. And I'm like, man, Max, th this feels like this is literally the, uh, th this is literally like every cause of waste that we ever find at, uh, at any facility. And still, still, yes. and this book was written when 97, so yes. mid nineties. I mean, th th again, these are the things that Henry Ford generally found ways to get through when he was designing the first assembly line, uh, again, in part because he removed variants to approximately zero, but he found ways to get through these. And in the hundred years since we have somehow managed to completely forget them. Now, so we, we talk about product flows and, and again, this probably will become an, a show in and of itself as we talk about constraints uh, versus non-constraints and, and how to find breakthrough improvement in this. If you guys have sat through Max's uh, synchron or, or operational excellence workshop and we, we go through and you guys do the, the math and the calculations on, on units and you talk about overtime um, and you go through the dice game, but this is very much kind of the same topics as, uh, as we talk through that. And when we look at companies, we see, you know, we have constraint, have a constraint. We have nine constraints. Most resources are nine constraints. So the rules for operating the nine constraints and operating the constraints need to be different. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to our measurement. So that's yeah. why the precursor on measurement, we got to make sure we understand what are our bottleneck resources and what are non-bottleneck and we need to measure them differently. Mm -hmm. If we're measuring them the same, of course, we're not going to get the right behaviors and we're not going to get the right results. Absolutely. Um, and so chapter six takes us to constraints, right? So as we were discussing constraints, uh, so I really like how this chapter starts, right? So quote, I'm up to my neck in alligators. This is an all too common motto of a typical manufacturing manager. And, uh, and I can say in the 25 years since we've written this book, it's not gotten better. It may have gotten worse, Max, but it has certainly not gotten better. I think it, it goes and we kind of talk about constraints being identified versus constraints not being identified and properly managed or mismanaged. I think it becomes the, I have so many fires, right? So if, if you can go and on the bottleneck side, identify the bottleneck versus the non-bottleneck, then you have your constraint. And as long as you can identify and manage your constraint, then everything else is going to, uh, to flow properly in a line. So I had, a, I had an interesting conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago, Max, with, with someone not in this room. And they, they said something to the effect of they were going through the process and they were working with a facility and the facility wanted, I think it was, it was maybe a CNC, I think it was like a CNC machine, right? And so the facility is like, this is our constraint. This one machine is our constraint. And the guy goes and, and he measures it. He measures just kind of like uptime over the course of a shift. Would you like to know how many hours over the course of a shift that that, that line ran? I'm going to guess three. It ran. So it ran four hours. But Max, they wanted to double the speed of that line. And so, so he goes and he measures it. And he's like, you guys are only running half of a shift. Right. And so instead of going through and doing a complete, you know, rework of the entire machine so it can run twice as well and only run for three hours, 
they're like, what we really need to do is have a more effective way to load and unload equipment. And if we can effectively load and unload equipment, then we can use our already, I don't know, $5 million machine more than four hours a day. And if we can use it more than four hours a day, then we can go through the process of having more throughput uh, through the entirety of the facility. So I think that we find and run through a lot of places who, I don't know, their, their first thought is we have to make this machine faster, right? Like we need to make the machine that we have identified as the constraint faster, as opposed to looking at some of the larger issues. And by looking at the larger issues, you're then able to go through the process of actually solving the root cause of the problem. And I think a lot of that stems from what he says in the book is that the cost allocation. So to order, and most people have the cost reduction mindset. So in order to get the cost down, we need to increase the cycle time or decrease the cycle time and make the machine run faster. But they don't look at the big opportunity that it's only running for the eight hours during the shift. Well, up until this person went in, they hadn't even measured it, Max. Like they didn't know. They knew that they needed to run more through this machine, probably because it had a pile of work behind it and a pile of work in front of it. And it needs to run more. And so their first thought is, let's make it run twice as fast. Yeah, so let's change the tooling so we can increase the spindle speed. Yep. And let's uh, do rapid movements you know, more precise so that we can get the cycle time down. Yep, it's a totally wrong focus. How many times have you walked into a machine shop like that and they tell you all of those things and you do a little bit of look and the answer is, we need to have better coolant or we need to strain the coolant because the coolant is dirty and we overheat because the coolant is dirty, not because we need to buy $20 million machines. A lot. (laughs) Yeah. Too often. Yes. Too often. It's the, it's the easy thing that we miss because we spend six months trying to justify internally and externally that we need to go spend millions of dollars to completely retrofit this. And done. So, so we, we talk about constraints here. And he talks about the chain analogy. So we're, yep. we're not going to get into it, but I just posted today on LinkedIn a short video on the chain analogy. Yes. So we can put the link in also yes. of that video. And it talks about how a chain acts, what are the measurements of a chain, and then how to improve a chain. Absolutely. Uh, and so that that's also part of Max's uh, operational excellence workshop. If you guys have have seen that, it, it's a good analogy. And, and like many of the things that he does, is it should be so simple, and you feel really stupid after he explains it to you. I, I'm sure that that's not the goal of Max because Max doesn't have the mean bones in his body uh, to go through a bunch of examples solely to make you feel stupid. But I can tell you, at least some of us will feel stupid that uh, it wasn't as obvious to us before as it was ahead. Uh, So one of the things that I like that we do, at least starting in the constraints section, is we've got a whole bunch of synchronous management principles. So synchronous management principle 3A, the marginal value of a unit of non-constrained material is its purchase price. Uh, So there are a bunch of really good ones. I I think I'm going to have to go through and, and pull these out. And we will put it out as, as something. Each um, one of these could be a, another session. Yeah, literally each one of these could be another session. And and maybe they will, right? And they So I guess one of the things and part of the reason why we're going through this is this book is so dense, right? Like there are times where I go to read through it, Max. I get like five pages. Like I, I generally know the things because we've talked about all of them. I've heard you present on all of them. And it's like, 
I got six pages this time. So it, it's very dense. I, I have said uh, to Dr. Goldratt's books, to this book, to basically the entirety of theory of constraints is if we could explain it in simple English, literally everyone would be doing it. Um, and I, I think that that is, that that is the big opportunity. I think that's the big miss in TOC. And it is in part why we're doing this to kind of spread awareness. Uh, yeah. And maybe Max goes and rewrites a bunch of books. Cause I know I'm not going to spend the next five years of my life uh, rewriting a bunch of books in simple English, but we will continue this if only to continue to, uh, to talk about uh, TOC and synchronous management because they're important and are literally life-changing for facilities who understand uh, what we're going through. So he talks a lot about different types of constraints. So that actually the thinking has changed on that since okay. this book was written. So he, he talks about policy constraints and mindset. So Dr. Goldratt said there really isn't those types of constraints. There's no such thing as a policy constraint. I thought this was a bit strange as I was going through it. Because certain policies can cause physical constraints. So most of the constraints are physical. Yes. It's either the market, it's either a process inside the organization, mm -hmm. and those are created by wrong mindset, created by wrong policies, created by wrong measurements. Yeah. So yeah. the measurements aren't actually the constraint. There's a physical constraint that's created, artificially created because of these other issues yeah and so like at its core there are internal and external constraints yes so like externally is i can't buy enough raw material or i can't sell enough and so many organizations that well up until a couple of years ago many organizations constraint was i can't sell enough and i find that that has changed either internally or to more of a raw material like internal items like i can't get the stuff i need uh, like, right, I can't buy another Pano book because there are literally none available. Um, and so internally, but most of the time, the work that, that we do is internal. So like, I need to run more throughput through my line. I have a nearly unlimited pipeline. If I can make more, I can sell more. And that on, on this side is the easiest constraint to go through and fix, right? It's let's go look at some equipment Maybe we bring some other experts in, but like if we can find breakthrough improvement internally and you have an unlimited market opportunity externally, then that is a much easier, that, that is much easier than the flip side of, I need to sell more. I need to sell more becomes a, a much more difficult uh, topic. When I start projects with companies, I always ask them, where is their constraint? And people guess. Yeah. And how many people are correct? Oh, I know the answer to this, Max. Zero. Zero. The only thing Max knows when people guess is, is that's guess not the concern. Wrong. Because they're looking at it from the existing environments with the existing policies, the ex yep. existing mindset, mm -hmm. the existing measurements, and it's uh, it's not a true picture of the constraint because the operating environment isn't isn't set up correctly. Yep. When we change the operating environment the constraint now reveals itself where it truly is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so th this is, this again, chapter six is a really good chapter. So after we go through a talk about identifying constraints, uh, we talk about continuous improvement, right? So improve quality control. Uh, we, we talk a lot about continuous improvement. So if you guys are on the continuous improvement, the CI side, this is absolutely like this should go generally hand in hand 
and maybe you're starting a new CI department and you're like, yeah, but I don't know where to start. If you focus on the constraints and focus on the improvement at the constraints, then the throughput will follow. So for us, it's the, we know we have to do all of these things, but at the end of the day, you do it at the place that it makes the most sense first, because at the end of the day, if your constraint is not running, nothing else matters. And if you guess where the constraint is in your organization and you go there and make improvements, yep. if the organizational performance doesn't improve, yep. you didn't pick the right place. Yes. In most cases, you're not going to pick the right place. Yep. And what you're going to see is more negative effects. Inventory is going to yes. go up, more cash tied up, more quality issues. So yep. I, do, I do a initiative in one area to improve that area and the performance of the company goes down. Yep. Which... I guess one is in the short term okay if you understand how to change that. But to Max, Max has made this very good point: is there is what is it like? There's nothing more beneficial than a well done TOC implementation, but there is potentially nothing more catastrophic to a company to an implementation with it's someone who doesn't wrong. understand. Yes, <laughs> which is I don't know, which is a little scary, but but then but then they relate the undesirable effect of the company performance going down to the initiative. It's like, well, TLC doesn't work yeah. because we tried it and we got worse results. Yes. So I work with, uh, with an organization that they're a facility in like a fortune 50 and, and, and I go in and I walk in the door and literally the posters on the wall are littered of previous, you know, continuous improvement initiatives, right? So a continuous improvement initiative or, uh, a TPM or, uh, you know, all of these other things. We, we've done all of these things and we did them for six weeks to three years and we haven't touched them in eight years. And so part of this, part of the core of operational excellence or, or theory of constraints is you have to build in the sustainability, right? So a, a Max could come in or a Dave could come in and we could do everything for an organization. We could find the constraint. We could remove the, the the blockages on the constraint, you guys could run really well. But if you don't put in and do the teaching and the training and the mentoring of the people internally in the company. And changing the measurements and changing the mindset and changing the behaviors. Yep, then there's no chance at long-term success. And so that that is why many of these take longer than if you were to come in and just give someone the answer. Like going and giving someone the answer is the easy part. Going and actually staying with people as we go through the implementation, that is the difficult part. Uh, let's go talk about just-in-time MRP2 and assembly lines, Max. Uh, so I, I love talking about things like this. So as we're through this, like, again, it's a book written in the 90s. So a book written in the 90s, and we're currently in some sort of catastrophic supply chain issues. And so as I go and read this, I'm like, man, we have, I don't know. Some of us would consider that we have proven just in time uh, flawed, horrifically. And he talks about flow of a river, right, yes. as the concept of flow. Yep. And he looks at water as the inventory. Yeah, I'm going to hold this up because I feel like it's really good. If you want to talk through the examples because I feel like they are, uh, they're very good examples. So when we have all these issues that prevent product flow, those are the rocks in the bottom. So it's like, oh, we have 
you know, unrealistic schedules. We have machine downtime. We have lack of training. We have inadequate information. We have poor quality. So all these things are the rocks. And so in order to get flow, one thing to do is just increase the inventory. Yes. And if we increase the inventory, that brings a whole nother set of undesirable effects. Cash tied up, more quality issues, more expediting, more cost due to expediting. Yep. And it's a no-win situation. It is a no-win We reduce the, the water level. We do inventory. We start running into all types of rocks. Yep. We increase the water level. We don't expose the rocks, but there's a new set of problems that we have to deal with. So it, it's to, to some effect a no-win situation. It's very much you have to go find the balance. I'm not sure the balance for any particular company is going to always be the same. And so it's a balance. What we generally find is that companies as a whole are holding way too much inventory, yep. right? And it is not uncommon to go into even a, a mid-sized company and find that they're holding millions of dollars of extra inventory, which is which is ridiculous. Max going in saying, yeah, I can go save you $5 million tomorrow, or as soon as we run out of inventory, uh, it's one of those that no one particularly believes. But if you go back through and you do the work, you understand what's actually important versus what's not important in inventory. And as the supply chain slightly mends itself, then we don't have to hold six months of raw materials. And so the company we're working with now, we learned this week that they reduced from t our whip or inventory by $2 million. They're about a $40 million company. Mm -hmm. They reduced it by 2 million so yep. far. Yes. And, you know, even we can't operate with zero inventory. So having the right amount of inventory, the, the, what's, stated in this chapter is yes. right sizing the inventory for your organization Absolutely. where we don't have too much and we don't have too little. Yes. And he goes into my favorite diagram here of EOQ. Oh, this, this, this is, I'm flashing back to, uh, to supply chain classes and uh, the masters of supply chain classes uh, back in business school uh, right here, Max. We, we did this once or twice before. And he talks about, batch size and how batch sizes are determined and and so forth and it's based on the eoq model batching has nothing to do with cost but most companies batch it or they determine their batch size based on a cost thinking yes and, and it's like, again oh. cost mentality is a bad mentality J yes J just cost cost mentality is a bad mentality yes that that is the new mantra but no so so eoq um batch size uh, and we, we talk about batch sizing and then we continue to uh, to go through this again, EO, it's, it's good, but it's also one of those we've had so much uncertainty over the last two years, even the people who were doing some of the best calculations and being ends, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word max being as lean as they possibly could. And so having cut costs and having been as just in time as possible, have run into to major issues, right? So uh, chip shortages, raw material shortages, kind of all of these shortages, they become difficult. And so, again, I feel like we have to take part of these chapters with just a bit of a grain of salt with the current supply chain yep. and economic situation that we're in. And we want to hold the inventory where it's most important to hold the inventory where we have huge variability. Yes. Otherwise, we don't want to hold inventory. We want to create flow. So this whole chapter talks about how to create flow and how batch size and flow 
are related and how to get better flow and by reducing bat size. There's multiple methods to reduce bat size. We're not going to get into them here. That could be a whole nother session. So I would say kind of to that point, j just to touch on bat sizing, because it's an example that we had touched on before, right? So uh, Max has done some work with the company and they forge things, right? So they forge tools and part of this process is they were, so they were actually paying their forgers a, a piece rate, yep. right? And they found that they were misaligned because a forger wants to forge 20,000 of the same thing because it's easier to forge 20,000 of the same thing than to forge a thousand of one and a thousand of the next and a thousand of the third. And so they had a misalignment because the forgers wanted to make the most money possible. So they'd forge as many of the same thing as they possibly could. And without fail, they had three, four, five items that they had tens or hundreds of thousands of finished goods on stock because they sell five or 10,000 of them over the course, big tools, right? So, but they only sell five or 10,000 of these over the course of the year, but they had 10 years on stock because they're easy to run. And if they're easy to run, we're going to run as many as we possibly can because we make more money. Uh, besides that, so synchronous management principle number five, resources must be utilized, not simply activated. <laughs> I love that, right? Let, like some of them is like, yeah, this is so simple. But how many times have you guys gone out on the line and see someone who is activated, right? So they're being paid, they are in a station, but they are scrolling their phone or they are talking to their neighbor or they are doing anything that is not being appropriately utilized. And because they're not being utilized or they are not Yes, they're not utilizing themselves. There's no there's no nicer way to say it, Max, because they're not utilizing themselves. They are just to the point of basically useless um, on the line. But you have the mindset in companies that the goal is to keep everybody busy. Yes. So the goal of the organization isn't keep everybody busy. Yes. And, and when you have an unbalanced system, it's impossible to keep everybody busy. Yes. So there's going to be idle time from time to time. Now it's manager's responsibility to figure out how to utilize that idle time to improve the performance of the company. Most resources are going to have idle time. How do we leverage that idle time yep. to make improvements that are going to actually improve the company performance? Absolutely. So I would agree with that. And so I think that we've found kind of like shifts back and forth. So I remember my dad saying that when he started working in automation and distribution and he was working for a distributor, so in a mostly sales or, or technical position in the nineties through early two thousands, it was the, Hey, if you can work really hard and get your work done and you don't have anything to do Friday afternoon, you can go home. But I feel like with the, well, the advent of the internet and cell phones and all of these things, then we all feel like we must be like activated all the time, right? Like we always have to be on, and because we always have to be on, I feel like that's pushed down to the thought of everyone always has to be busy or appear to be busy. And because we appear to be busy, like, like that is what it's being focused on. It's like for many places, showing up is 50% credit. But I think with actually with the pandemic, we've seen a lot more people work remotely, right, Max? And the only thing that matters for people who work remotely, not just business owners now, is, is throughput. Like, what do you accomplish? If I can accomplish six hours worth of work in 45 minutes in the morning, then I have accomplished six hours worth of work in 45 minutes. But if it takes you 20 hours to accomplish six hours worth of work, you still have to have the same throughput. So as, as we align those KPIs and it becomes less appearing to be busy and more throughput of the line, 
that is again the only thing that matters yeah so being busy and being productive are not synonymous almost exclusively not busy people are almost never the most productive people max uh, so do you want to go talk a little bit about MRP2 or do you want to go promise that we will talk about manufacturing resource planning in a whole other uh, segment? Because I, I feel like that is just a, that, that is. I'll just make a quick talk. note. Okay. MRP, you know, the basis of MRP is to keep everybody busy. Yes. So pulling jobs ahead yes. to make sure that all resources are highly utilized and also they don't account for variability. So the issues with MRP systems is they don't account for variability and they're trying to maximize the utilization of all the resources, yep. which is opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Agreed. Uh, no, I think that, uh, I think that that sounds good. Uh, let's go into the buff drum. Wow. Well, I can't talk. Let's go into the drum buffer rope system. Uh, which is kind of substantially the rest of the book, right? So we talk about drum buffer rope system uh, for, for most, for chapters eight, nine, and I think 10 as we get into it. So, so the, the, this is substantially uh, most of the, the book. Do you want to like go give us the overview, Max? Because I know you do the overview professionally uh, fairly often. Basically, the concept of drum buffer rope is to create flow. Okay. So we create flow by using the drum buffer rope. So I'll explain what that is. The drum is the pace that we need to operate at to meet customer demand. Yep. So the drum sets the pace that the organization needs to run at to meet our demand. Okay. The buffer is how much time are we going to allow for that order to flow from start to finish through the entire system? Okay. And the rope is restricting the release of material, a buffer time before the due date. Okay. So it's the, it's the way to get synchronization in an organization where you have variability. If you have variability in your product mix, if you have variability in demand, if you have variability in, um, the types of things that you do, you might have multiple value streams. So drum buffer rope, rope is a technique that'll get stability within, my rule is three lead time cycles. Okay. If your lead time is six weeks, mm -hmm. then you should be stable in 18 weeks. Okay. So I'm working with a company, we just started, a, um, we did a workshop or in negotiation with a company where they're production lead time from start to finish of an order is about three weeks. Okay. So they were blown away when I said, you know, we probably have three weeks of setup mm -hmm. to get the drum buffer rope system designed. Yep. And 12 weeks after that, you should be stable. So they're like 16 weeks, we could be stable. It's ah! like, that's not even possible. So, so Max, I would like to compliment you I'm not taking three, multiplying it by three and get nine. So I feel like most of the time, Max is like, yeah, we could do it in 48 hours, guys. So I, I appreciate you <laughs> quoting them 16 weeks for a much more realistic time uh, to, to find stability. But, but, they, but they don't even believe that's possible. That's fine. I mean, I would tell you I don't believe nine weeks is possible knowing how long things actually take. But I think 16 weeks is probably fairly reasonable. And uh, you can get into it uh, within 16 weeks. But no, I think that 
a, a lot of it becomes that you have to take a step back. And so if you take a step back and can completely rebuild the system, and most of the time that means you have to have a very outside perspective. So if you have the outside perspective, take a step back, then you can build the system. And as long as you can implement and they follow the implementation of the drum buffer rope, excuse me, system, then I, I feel like it's, it's absolutely plausible in order to, uh, in order to get there. So what else do we want to cover? Uh, what else can we continue to explain in drum buffer rope? So the key to the drum buffer rope is establishing the right buffer. Yes. So how much time, are you going to allow each job to flow start to finish through your system? We should probably define buffer. I'm not so buffer is just time. Yes. So um, buffers can come in multiple forms. It can be inventory, yep. which to me, inventory is just stored time. Mm -hmm. It can be time. It can be extra capacity, available capacity on a machine, which is open time on the yes. machine. So buffer is time. So you're going to look at for each order, how much time are we going to allow for that order to flow start to finish given all the problems that you have today? Yes. So we're not going to go through and start fixing problems. We're going to start by establishing the flow. Mm -hmm. And once we do that, the problems start to prioritize themselves. So which problems are first to focus on the ones that are preventing the constraint from being more productive. Boom. And now we've come, now we've explained theory of constraints. And as I, I said, solve your manufacturing problems immediately. And just by choking, so if they have too much whip in the system, then we know that they're activating resources and not utilizing them properly. So you're going to stop most resources from working from time to time. Yes. And we're going to release jobs a lead time before it's due. Yep. And we're going to focus on flow. And I would say, so part of most of these implementations, as Max calls it, choke the release. Right? Yep, that's which, step which, one. Which might be the scariest thing for anyone, right? So the, the conversation is, hey, we need to stop releasing everything. And we need to let the system kind of work itself out. And then once we've let the system work itself out, we can again start releasing things in order to actually figure out how long everything takes in order to be able to appropriate release moving forward. And I think it scares everyone, Max. I'm not even going to lie. It scares me when I go tell that to a client. It's like, well, the first thing we do is we stop, stop releasing working. orders. <laughs> you know how we promised you that we were going to make everything all better? Well, the first thing we do is we have to stop almost everyone from working in order to put everyone to work. Yeah. Uh, honestly, people take it much better than I think. It's hard. I'm not sure I would take it as well as most uh, most of these folks do, Max. That's what I. That's when I get. You want to do what? Are you nuts? Generally, the answer is yes. If you guys ask uh, Max that question, I think on when I did the podcast on the manufacturing hub, I talked about the dental lab. Yes. Where we stopped releasing for three days and people were freaking out. Yes. But in order to get the inventory right sized. You, and if you have too much inventory in the system, you got to stop releasing work. Yes, which is which is difficult. But I've never seen someone who had issues on the backside because we stopped releasing work ever. at the front side. At, at the front side, yes. No, I, I mean long term. I've never seen a company have issues because we choked the release because choking the release. But again, it's you have to understand how to do it. If you don't do it, then the company just devolves into chaos. So the three mistakes I see, one, not establishing the right buffers. Yes. 
one, not choking the release properly. So not, so the rope is the choking mechanism. So not choking because they can't get past, oh, we can't have people standing around. Yep. We need everyone busy. Well, that's not the correct mindset. What was the third one? Did we get all three? So it's not establishing the right buffers, um, not properly choking the release, and not understanding our demand rate. Okay. You want to define demand rate? So it's the rate that the customer is demanding, and it's not the forecasted demand, it's the demand. <laughs> Which I find lots of companies struggle with that, right? Like they struggle with actual versus forecasted demand. And then we worked with a number of companies who like forecast the demand, but the demand is all the forecasted demand is always wrong. So Matt, Max, you tell them what you said. Forecast. They only know two things about forecast. 50% of the time it's too high and 50% of the time it's too low. Those are only two things I know about a forecast. Yep. And, and we've worked with a number of companies who even after we go through this, still because they produce to their their forecast they literally cannot keep up with demand right so they're always 24 or 36 hours behind demand because their forecasts are always wrong and if we were to just hold off 24 hours to produce to actual demand or yeah you know, to produce to actual demand or a reasonable stocking level then we would be able to meet client demand the day that the clients have the demand so a funny story it's just in a company and we were talking about false demand signals mm -hmm. and a lot of the policies you have are creating false demand signals and one company that they would get an order for 20 at a time yeah. from the customer so like they wouldn't get any orders for like weeks and then all of a sudden 20 orders yeah and so they started to look at why it's happening and the reason it's happening because they give a price discount when they ah. order 20 or more Okay. So now the customer's batching their orders yeah. to get the price discount I mean, and causing sense. false demand signals. I suppose. I, I found a really good way to uh, to understand false demand signals, Max. And just go ask the customer why they buy them in lots of 20 at random times. Yep. And, and they'll so the, tell you. The customer told them yep. because you have a price discount at 20 units. Yep. That's why we buy 20 at a time. And I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And then... Then the company can go through and decide if it makes sense for them to continue to have the price discount at 20 or, and some companies it does, right? right? So some companies, if they can batch 20, supplier, the supplier gave them a price. So it yeah. said, if you buy between one and 10, this is the price. Yeah. If you be buy between 11 and 20, you get a better price because you know, the setup costs and our cost mentality. What they found out if they buy 11, mm -hmm. it's cheaper than buying 10. Oh, so, so they order 11 every time. Math is difficult, Max. Like you have to be cognizant of that. Like sometimes you want to give 20% off at 11, 20% off at a hundred, right? Like at some point, if you give 25, 20% off at a hundred of something, then anytime they get above 90 hours, they just are 90, they're going to buy a hundred, right? Because it's the, the incremental is literally a negative number. So that's what causes the false demand signals. It's like yep. they don't need 11, but they can buy 11 cheaper than they can buy one through 10. So if they buy eight, might as well just buy 11, buy 11. Yep. So now Especially I'm buying extra units that aren't needed. So the 
supplier thinks that there's demand there when there isn't because of their own policies. It's so simple, Max. And it generally all comes down to math. Can't tell you how many times in school I'm like, when am I ever going to use this math stuff, Max? <laughs> I use so much Max. I use so much math, Max. It is, it is silly. Uh, so I like this. And so we, we continue to get into the drum buffer rope system. Uh, chapter 10 gives us an actual application of the drum buffer rope. That is just... DBR. DBR is yes. easy. Yeah, but drum buffer rope is a very difficult word to say over and over. So we could probably have a whole session on DBR. I feel the, like we, we should. The, we'll do another show on just specifically DBR. We can talk about the, the history of DBR. So it was started out as DBR. Now it's simplified DBR. So DBR assumed that there was an internal constraint and there was two buffers. There was a constraint buffer and a shipping buffer. Okay. And so what they found was that that was adding a lot of complexity without getting any benefits. So they said, let's eliminate that and just go with one buffer. Okay. So now simplified drum buffer rope is one buffer system for the whole, for each order, not a okay. constraint buffer and not a shipping buffer. And then, so it's, it just simplified everything. So I use simplified drum buffer rope. I appreciate how in TOC in the last, I don't know, almost 30 years at this point, we've come up with concepts and realized and like, can you imagine how difficult they are if internally we realized they were too difficult, Max? I, I mean, I think it's the irony of it, right? Let's like, Oh man, actually applying this thing we thought was so difficult. So let's come up with the simplified version. So I appreciate that. I feel like they're 20% of the way to the rest of the world understanding. But it's that standing on the shoulders of giants. You got to step back and say, you know, maybe we made this too complex. Yep. Is there a simpler way? And remember, we said it, we always want to make things simple, but not too simple, yes. right? So the TOC community is taking great strides and stepping back and saying, hey, maybe this isn't the best way. Maybe there is a simpler way yes. that's less complex. Absolutely. Um, no, I, I agree. And so chapter 11 drives literally driving continuous improvement in business performance. So we talked about continuous improvement uh, a little bit towards the beginning and how important it is. And then we also talked about how one of the core tenets of TOC at least should be in anyone implementing, building the skills to have the continuous implementation within the organization. And without allowing the organization to continue to deploy those without a Max or a Dave or we could list maybe three other people who do this work, but w without someone there, it uh, it is a miss uh, organizationally and, and implementation wise, because at some point it will fail. And if it fails, then it's blamed upon TOC. And we want to stress system thinking. And then yeah. I just watched a video a week ago that I shared on LinkedIn that Russell Ackoff presented on system thinking. Yep. And so that has to be the basis for our continuous improvement. And what he basically said was that if you improve a process, if the organization performance simultaneously doesn't improve, it's not an improvement. And we've talked about that a lot in this show. Change versus improvement. Yes. You, so you can, a change is a change. A change is not an improvement. Yes. So what's continuous improvement where I change a process and I improve a process and simultaneously the system performance or the organization performance improves as a result. 
Absolutely. Oh, but uh, but that generally runs us uh, to the end yes. of uh, the end of the book. And, and we've already been talking about this for 75 minutes, Max, which is maybe the shortest conversation that we've had on this to date. Uh, but no, so at the end, I, I like all of the uh, synchronous management principles. Again, I feel like the principles are really good. Uh, we will go ahead and, uh, and post these or post a series of these because I think that they're, they're very, they're very valuable. Um, so maybe my next series of LinkedIn videos is going to be these oh, principles. Like so Max did, was it 56? Something like that. Max did almost 60, but not quite 60 operational excellence videos, uh, videos, which are really good. So we will make sure to link to Max's. I mean, you guys have Max's LinkedIn, but also his YouTube Vimeo. channel, YouTube and Vimeo. We'll, we'll figure out where we want to drive the traffic and we will go ahead and, and post those in there as well. Cause all of those are very good um, as a as a on the shoulders of giants inside hoop. The best part of them is how you could tell the clients Max was working with that week based upon and the struggles that they were having based upon the organizational or operational excellence uh, items that uh, that he was posting over the course of the week. And it's like, Max, I know who you were with last week. <laughs> <laughs> you guys won't, but but you can appreciate that Max was struggling with these specific items the week before with a client, and this is how we've gotten here. Oh man! But uh, my favorite one was we run overtime to reduce our costs. Yes, we run overtime to reduce our cost. Yeah. So everyone, this has been episode nine of On the Shoulders of Giants. Thank you guys for coming and hang out with us for synchronous management profits based manufacturing for the 21st century volume one uh with shree we'll of course have all the information in here if you are if you are listening on podcast um beyond that if you guys haven't followed max and i please go ahead and do that please follow manufacturing hub the manufacturing hub network on linkedin which is where we're posting everything i will continue to be live wednesdays at generally five o'clock East Coast time, but uh, but not this Wednesday. This Wednesday I'll be live noon East Coast time uh, for a special show. We're going to talk about reshoring. Max and I, you will continue to find us in your earbuds most Tuesday mornings, other than when we're on site and I forget to post the podcast, which is what I did last week. Max, uh, it, was, it was funny. So I was on the live show and I'm like, and you guys can listen to episode eight. And I'm like, wait, I never hit launch. So unless Max and I are like struggling on the line. On Tuesdays, uh, you guys can absolutely go ahead and find that. Um, until next time, thank you guys. Uh, thank you guys so much. If you're listening on podcast, uh, five stars, hit a thumbs up, subscribe, do all of those great things. It helps the algorithm and it helps us. And we are happy to continue talking about this. If you guys are continue happy to continue listening. And give us ideas of what you want to hear. Yes. If you guys have thoughts or ideas, please let us know if you have questions. You can drop them in the comments or you can uh, you can connect directly with Max and I. We'd love to help answer your questions and maybe it'll turn into uh, maybe it'll turn into a show at some point in the future. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Have we have we forgot to ask people to do anything, Max? Nope. Perfect. Well, thank you all. Until next time, we will see you soon. Um, bye bye.